Welcome to the National Democratic Institute's Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. In these candid conversations recorded from home, politically active women from around the globe interview each other about the male-dominated world of politics. They're the best examples of why we need to move faster to reach political parity between men and women before the middle of the next century and change the face of politics. In this episode, Wanjira Mathai, Vice President and Regional Director for Africa at the World Resources Institute, interviews Margaret Alba, former Indian governor, minister, and parliamentarian about her life and continued legacy within politics and what it means to fight for women's rights today. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Changing Face of Politics podcast series. My name is Wanjira Mathai, and I'm the Vice President and Regional Director for Africa at the World Resources Institute. My guest today is the Honorable Margaret Alva. Ms. Alva is a former Indian politician and has had a long career in Indian politics, serving as a parliamentarian, a minister, and governor of four states. I am looking forward to this conversation because I know how demanding politics can be. And I can't imagine what it's been like to take the risks she has taken. So thank you very much. Last year, Margaret, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Conference and Platform for Action. What do you think has changed in women's, in political leadership and decision-making in the last 25 years? And also what has stubbornly stayed the same? What has changed and what has stayed the same in your opinion? You know, it's a quarter of a century when you look at it. Things have changed, they have improved. Uh, I must say that uh, there is much more awareness. The media outreach has brought in much larger numbers who are in the periphery into mainstream uh, participation, I would say. Uh, just look at the numbers. For instance, in 95, um, women in parliaments were at 11%. We have gone up to 24.5%. Still low, but at least a movement forward. And we have, we have got three countries, Cuba, Rwanda, and Bolivia, which have more than 50% women in their parliaments. So there is the movement forward. I would say, given the example of India, we had for long talked about the trickle-down effect that you know, if you have a prime minister and you have these sort of uh, women at the top, automatically, you know, the benefits will go down. It has not worked that way. So we have been moved from that in the 90s to the down up program. So we brought in reservations, for instance, for women in the local body. And I'm so glad to say that since 95, we have over 2 million women in India elected to local bodies. You know, we also have 33% of them in posts and positions. So it has been definitely a socio-political 
uh, revolution, if I may say so, the largest perhaps in the world at the grassroots level. And these women now are becoming self-confident, moving up. And you see women now at the high table in decision-making positions. You see women, um, you know, in all fields uh, in India besides politics, but politically awareness has grown. And this theme that Mrs. Clinton gave that women's rights are human rights has really become a slogan which is being used by women's groups, organizations, and so on. Uh, women have come into decision-making positions. And I would say that um, a training, quotas, and voter participation has gone up tremendously. But you see what has not changed. The male mindset hasn't changed. The structures are still male-dominated, male-oriented, and uh, like they say, you know, you have the dance, one step forward, one step back. The men are trying everything possible to ensure that uh, they still have a hold on the system, on political structures, and uh, in the decision-making. That's remarkable. And you're so right. Women's rights are human rights has become a, a rallying call somewhat for, for so many of us. Margaret, what motivated you to get involved in politics? Why did you get involved? You know, I wrote my autobiography two years ago, Courage and Commitment. I have detailed how from a girl in a small town in India, where we went to school barefoot because of the heavy rains. You couldn't wear anything on your feet. And from there, I reaching Lutens, Delhi, which is the power center of the country, was a long journey. But uh, I must say that I was active in the students' movement and uh, I was a good speaker, I was a debater. I got uh, really involved because I married into a political family. I met my husband when we were in the student movement. I went on uh, into the party, party politics, uh, got involved. And uh, I must say that Indira Gandhi picked me up. Mm. She heard me speak at a rally and she was impressed. And she was a person who just kept picking up people who she thought uh, had promise. So she just brought me to the upper house of parliament, which is the Rajya Sabha in 1974. They say, if you have a family background, you get in. But you know, Vanjira, getting in is one thing being able to sustain yourself and stay on in a man's world, in a developing country, and with so many social inhibitions as far as women are concerned, is not easy. I got in in 74, and I managed four terms in the upper house. That's 24 years, six-year terms, which is very, very rare. I came in at the age of 32 and wow. stayed on, stayed on for four terms. Then 
I went to the lower house. That's the Lok Sabha. I was elected for a that's general election. That is directly by the people. I won one term and I was there for five years. So from a backbencher, I moved gradually to be a minister on the front benches. I was in uh, parliamentary committees. I was going around the country. Yes. I never was afraid to speak up, to oppose my own party where I had to and make my presence felt. And I must say that even as I came in, I was very passionate about some things. One was women's rights. Second was trafficking children, you know. Mm -hmm. I, as minister, changed the law to make it both girls and boys because, you know, the boys were also having to be looked after now. Yes. Yes. And then a number of laws were amended, new laws were brought. I had a legal background. I'm a lawyer by profession. So that helped very much in looking at laws, amending them, changing them. And uh, I must say that I also was very, very uh, active with the environmental issues. And uh, as a member of the opposition, we formed a group to bring in the Forest Rights Act for the tribals, for those living in the forest and so on. And uh, well, as I finished with parliament in 2004, I became general secretary of the party at the party headquarters. And uh, I had the record, uh, Mrs. Gandhi, that Sonia Gandhi gave me eight states to look after from Mizoram uh, to Goa and the South. And five years, I was full time in the party working as general secretary. Then I was made governor. So in 2009, I went for five years to for Raj Bhavan simultaneously. I stayed on it even after change of government. Mr. Modi gave me two more states to handle. Margaret, a beautiful story. I mean, what a remarkable experience. I mean, I remember Margaret, my mother was a parliamentarian and she didn't have any experience in politics. She always said that her colleagues who are lawyers always had an advantage. And I can imagine for you, 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 you were prepared in many ways that you, you were in the student movement, you loved speech, you loved to debate, obviously then teeing yourself up for, for a career like this. And, and I imagine you actually enjoyed it. I had this great advantage that I entered a political family. My parents-in-law were freedom fighters, both of them. They were the first couple in the Indian parliament, the Alvas. Yeah. They were journalists, lawyers, and members of parliament. Right. So I had this sort of grounding, if I may say so, within the family and the exposure which few people have uh, to begin your political career. Yeah. Margaret, I have a question about Indira Gandhi. She, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, we admired her and we, the world in many ways was talking about women in politics and yet India was way ahead. You were way ahead in that area. How was she as, I mean, you mentioned her bringing you up. Is that how she was? Was that an important, would you say, part of I, your political career? I must say that whatever others said, she had many people who didn't agree with her. 
She was progressive. She brought in many changes in our economy, in our uh, political. And you know, whenever a woman is tough, they say, oh, you know, she's, she's uh, this and she's that. When a man is tough, they are prepared to take it. Indira Gandhi had a vision. She had a desire to change things. And I must say, believe me, she would go around the country, she would find somebody with promise, somebody with uh, she felt would be good. She picked them up, she brought them in. She was never afraid uh, or insecure about bringing talented, yeah. qualified yeah. women. I've seen so many women are afraid to bring women, um, you know, who could overshadow their own. I'm saying not um, be submissive enough. Yeah. As, yeah. But she was different. Even young men, she brought so many from all over the country. And yeah. the second rung of leadership was developed by her, which wow. I think leaders need to do. That's amazing because today we barely develop leadership and, and nurture that sort of leadership and encourage people to go. I, I so admire that narrative. And in fact, my next question is somewhat connected to that because so much is said about women in politics. Do you think that there is a difference in the way women like Indira Gandhi and others lead and the way men lead and engage others? I think there is. You know, my experience has been that women tend to be uh, if I may say so, uh, more uh, responsive to the needs of people. They have empathy, you know, and they are prepared to listen. They are uh, approachable and they look at issues and problems with a humane touch. A woman thinks, I think, more with a heart than with a head, if I may say so. I don't know whether you would like it or not, but for men, it is all construction, contractors, and commerce when they come into politics. It's, uh, you know, we have found that studies, independent studies have found that since women came into local bodies in such large numbers, the development agenda has changed. Yeah. We call it uh, development with a human face. Women are asking for things that change lives of common people at the grassroots. Drinking water, primary health centers, um, you know, daycare centers for children, what we call Anganwadis, the midday meal scheme. These are things which women have brought into the mainstream of political life, if I may say so, at the grassroots levels. And this is the base of the pyramid. So I feel that uh, women have a different approach. Men tend to be very businesslike. Their solutions are cut and dry. You know, they feel they were born to rule. So it's my way or no way. They take decisions. But women tend to be much more accommodative, much more responsive. And they know the struggle at the grassroots, what poverty is, what, uh, you know, being deprived of basic necessities in their families is. 
So they, when they come into these positions, are able to respond in a more humane way. And that is why people, the, you know, the voters at the local level are electing women even from general constituencies, yeah. even from non-reserved constituencies, because they feel that they are much more trustworthy, less corrupt, and more human. That's so remarkable. And, you know, it's when I hear you talking about that, it reminds me, Margaret, that I worked in the renewable energy sector and we said women must be involved across the, the renewable energy value chain because it, it matters and the money goes further. And the research showed exactly what you said, that when you put money in the hands of women, 90% of it is plowed into the community. For men, that number was 20%. So that is, you know, your point made exactly. I think you're absolutely, they, they have so much skin in the game that we need to invest in. Now I find women are networking. We were not good at this before. Now at the local level, women are cutting across uh, religion, community, language, caste, and networking to get their jobs done. And if I may tell you, the Women's Reservation Bill, which of course has come to Parliament and the men will not allow it being passed, but it was the effort of women, this sort of uh, core numbers that we had, which Mexico had said that 33% is the minimum required to have um, a group that would be critical, they called it the critical mass to get women's views, women's uh, pressure groups functioning within elected bodies. And I must say that we have cut across party lines for the Women's Reservation Bill, uh, demonstrations, marches, you know, sit-ins. Um, it has come to the final stage because it has been passed by the upper house, only the lower house has to pass it. But Mr. Modi will not bring it to the house. It can be passed in half an hour. Yeah. The men are afraid that if women come in, then the structures begin to change. I always say, Vanjira, you know, we have been the scaffolding in politics. The men have stood on the scaffolding and painted the big wall the way they wanted it. Their colors, their images. Today, women are also climbing the scaffolding. And that's what the men are afraid of. Beautiful metaphor. We have been the scaffolding in politics for a long time. We are expected to campaign for them. We are expected to be polling agents. We are supposed to do door-to-door -door, um, party work for them. And yet, when it comes to making us the candidates, oh, you know, they won't be able to manage it. Why not? Why not? Scaffolding is pretty solid. I love it. <laughs> that is wonderful. Margaret, what has surprised you most about politics? Every day is a surprise. Particularly as a woman, I suppose you are asking me. Yes. Uh, survival. You know something, we women come into politics. Take, for instance, my life. They were two completely independent, parallel lives. 
you are a homemaker, you are a wife, you are a mother, you are a daughter-in-law, and uh, you know, you have to take the responsibility for the family. And at the same time, you are a public figure, you are under scrutiny all the time, and you have to prove that you are not just equal, but that you are better, better. To, be, to be accepted and uh, to be recognized. And when it comes even uh, to recognition, women are never given posts and positions as for their capacity, their qualifications, and uh, their work. It's supposed to be patronage when it comes to women. Why? I'm asking, if I'm good enough to be the defense minister, why should only a man be the defense minister? In fact, studies have shown that women make better peace negotiators. They look at things from a different perspective. We have the Naga women in Nagaland where there has been this underground movements for years. There you will see it is the Nagaland Mothers Association that works on peace, peace proposals to bring their sons out of the underground. You know, in the Punjab, you had the mothers at the height of the, of the violence there. It is mothers who sat together to get their sons back into their families and their homes. So I think that women really can influence decision-making. And uh, women, I may, if I may say so, I've seen from my experience of 50 years in public life, you need courage yeah. and you need commitment. That's what I, I titled my biography. Courage and commitment. These are two things that can carry you through. But I must say that you need an understanding family and a supportive spouse. If it wasn't for my husband who came from a political background, I would never have achieved all the things I did. Wow, I was gonna ask you about that, Margaret, about whether your family ever had any reservations about you in politics. But um, really those words, courage and commitment, and maybe even patience, but you have clearly demonstrated the staying power. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Will your family support? Uh, that, that sounds great. You know, I always made, I have four, we have four children. My husband died two years ago. My husband always encouraged me. When I was hesitant, he would say, what are you hesitant about? My mother went to jail with a five month babe in arms during the freedom movement. You have to give your time and your energy to the country, to the party. So he would push me even when I was hesitant. And uh, he always told the children that what we were doing was part of our duty, that it was part of our tradition, that it was part of the family's history and that we had to be proud of it. So the children, you know, in vacations, I would combine work with, uh, with the children's holidays. They would go with us and uh, you know we would sort of combine they saw the whole country with us in their vacations because i worked and i took them along and my husband was there so we enjoyed the whole experience 
but it requires a lot of sacrifice. There's no time for yourself. You can't do the things you would love to do, uh, except perhaps occasionally go into the kitchen and cook. But uh, generally, it is a life of giving, self-sacrifice. You have to be prepared. It's a life of service, Margaret. And just listening to you talk about how supportive your family was must have been such a, a great blessing because so many feel um, the reservation of family. That uh, either unmarried women or widows, you know, come into politics. Yeah. yeah. I got in, uh, you wouldn't believe it, at the age of 27. Wow. as a full-time political worker in the party yeah. and uh, four children, my parents-in-law, um, you know, my father-in-law after my mother-in-law died. The whole family actually had to be looked after by me in one form or the other. But that's the strength which women have. A man can never give. That's terrific. Terrific. I love that. Thank you so much. I, I wanted to ask you, um, as we move into the new generations of politicians, how can we encourage and how can people like you who've paved the way, so many people standing on your shoulders inspired by you, how do we encourage more women to go into politics today? What works? What are some of the things we ought to be doing? You know something? Uh, we, my generation, I'm talking from my experience, uh, we had the icons of the freedom movement before us. You know, women who had come out, given up everything, and who had worked with their hearts, not looking for rewards, not looking for positions, but they were committed people. And uh, my generation learned from them. Well, I know I deal with younger people, even in the party, I've been trying to bring in people, mentor women. And I must say that most of my other women colleagues are not happy when I try to bring in younger people. They have their own way of dealing with problems. It's the computer and it's all the internet and everything else, which I am very poor at. We work with our hands, we went out and we were part of the movement, you know. But uh, the new generation, uh, we call it um, Gen Z. The new generation, it is the computer age and they have different approaches, but they are our hope. We are having training programs for young people. I mentor a number, I participate in the training programs which they have, but I must say that uh, they are getting, they are impatient, they want change. And uh, I think more and more of them are now beginning to realize that they have to get into decision-making and not just sit out and dream of changing things. As Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see. You have to be involved. And I have great hope with the younger generation. They are, uh, they are bold and I think they know much more of what's happening in the world. 
and they are connected. And uh, we have a lot of programs for training them now, even during COVID, we have them all uh, virtual um, sort of programs and then they call them the webinars and they ask us to come and speak, to talk. I've offered to mentor anybody they want. Anyway, I help prepare some capsules for training. We give them the background. I speak and uh, we try to help. And I think the younger people are much brighter than my generation. The Honorable Margaret Alva. I love it. Thank you so much, Margaret, for, for that time. Be the change. You have been the change. I have so enjoyed. I just can't believe we are out of time. It has been such a delightful conversation. Margaret, I want to also just say we stand in solidarity with India at this time, thinking of you and all that's happening there. Um, you have served with such grace, and, and we know that you I just that countries which had women leaders during COVID, Germany, New Zealand, Taiwan, others, showed a different picture altogether. In my country, I'm sorry to say, across party lines, the men have been so callous, so indifferent to the rising crisis. The prime minister is busy rebuilding the capital with crores and crores of rupees when we don't have hospitals and we don't have even vaccinations that the people need and the oxygen. So I really feel that we need more positions that can make a change. Thank you, Margaret. Delightful. I hope we'll stay in touch. I'd love to, yeah. to pick your brain more. Yeah, we will be in touch. Thank you very much. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. To learn more about the series and NDI's initiative, please go to NDI's website at ndi.org.